Well, thanks for joining us again today. We're going to continue the discussion about uh, diseases and disease transmission, looking at how we can go about protecting ourselves, as it is now the time of the year where we have to start worrying about cold and flu. And we don't want to get stuck in the house all day long, feeling not the best. And so how can we go about protecting ourselves and protecting others around us in order to eliminate any of the possible diseases that get transmitted throughout the year? So let's talk about that. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believe to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individual. Enjoy. And so when we're looking at this idea, it's all about how the body is able to go about mounting a response to any type of pathogen that enters the body. What we're really looking at is we're looking at immune responses. And in particular, looking at immune responses to all of the various things that our body interacts with based off the idea what's referred to as immunocompetence. And so what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to react to things without becoming contagious. And what we have to remember is that just because we have been infected doesn't mean that we're going to actually become contagious. It's about limiting how we're able to go about being contagious to others. And the only way this comes about is through becoming immunocompetent. And immunocompetent is based off of the ability for distinct cells to do distinct things. And when we're talking about distinct cells doing distinct things, what we're really talking about is we're talking about T cells and B cells instigating a response and developing an antibody-mediated response to the various things that we might interact with that could cause us sick and could cause others around us to become sick. And so it's really looking at how we can go about having an active immune response. And that active immune response is either going to be a local and acute response or a systemic and global response. And we're looking at this local acute response versus a systemic global response. What we're really looking at is how does our body handle all of the stresses, all of the immune functions, all of the inflammation that we're facing on a daily, hourly, minute, and second basis. And so when we're looking at pathogens, what we're really looking at is we're looking at how do we go about responding to exposure to pathogens. And what we're going to look at here is looking at what is the ideal means by which we're able to eliminate pathogen transmission. And so there's two ways to go about doing this. It's either going to be I've interacted with the real thing and I've survived it, or I've been vaccinated against it. And so whether we're looking at a vaccine or exposure to the real thing, what we're really looking at is we're looking at the way in which B cells and T cells are going to become active and mount an antibody-mediated response to it. And so whenever we have interactions with any type of pathogen, any type of disease-causing organism, we're going to get activation of B cells. And the activation of B cells is going to lead to the production of antibody. And what antibodies are going to do is they're going to go out and they're going to label that specific pathogen as being foreign as being something that needs to be eliminated from the body. After being exposed to a pathogen, B cells will be producing any antibody that can tag 
that pathogen, once it's been activated, we will have circulating levels of antibodies following exposure to pathogens, but we will see a uh, spike in those antibody materials when we get exposure to the pathogen. And what this is going to do is this is going to allow for macrophages, immune cells that are going to digest and eliminate the pathogen, and T cells, which are going to actively destroy the pathogen to become active and to respond to the pathogen in such a way as to eliminate the pathogen from the body. And so when we're looking at this idea about exposure, we can get exposed to the pathogen. In fact, we're exposed to pathogens all the time. And we're exposed to pathogens. And if the pathogen is something that is very similar to something we've already been exposed to, our body's able to mount a defense against it. But then there's other things that we haven't been exposed to that we have to somehow train the body so that it's able to go about doing its defense mechanisms. And this is where vaccines come into play. Now, I've already gone into greater detail with the vaccines earlier. And so when we look at vaccines, we have various forms of vaccines, the inactivated vaccines, the live attenuated vaccines, the messenger RNA vaccines, the subunit or recombinant or conjugate vaccines, the toxoid or the viral vector vaccines. All these vaccines are doing is providing the body with a means by which it can recognize the pathogen's antigen and establish a means by which the B cells are able to provide the antibodies necessary for the appropriate immune response to take place. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to not only protect our body, but also protect others that are surrounding us. And so when we talk about this development of immunocompetence, it's about vaccination or immunization. And this is about, is it a passive acquisition or is it an active acquisition? If I am passively acquiring my immunocompetence, that means I'm becoming vaccinated against something. That means I'm being exposed to an inactive form of the pathogen or the protein that is part of the antigen that's going to trigger the immune response. If I'm actively acquiring my immunocompetence, that means that I have actually been infected and I have survived. And that's the key here, survivor. When we're looking at this idea about developing immunocompetence, one of the things we have to remember is, is that we're not just looking at me surviving, but we're also looking at providing some sort of protection to those who are in close proximity to myself, whether that's during the time that I happen to be infected or in between exposure. And this is where uh, anybody who's been around young children, particularly young children who are going to school, particularly young children going to school for the first few weeks of each school term, understand the fact that the children are constantly picking up new exposures to things and they're bringing that stuff home and the child is feeling ill and you're feeling ill for the first few weeks. And what you're doing over those first few weeks is you're developing immunocompetence to all of those new exposures that you're coming in contact with. It's the same thing that happens when you travel around the world and you get exposed to various types of pathogens that you don't normally get exposed to within your normal everyday life. And every time you're able to survive that, you're able to increase your overall level of immunocompetence. But when we start looking at it in terms of going beyond myself, it's about reducing my contagiousness to others. 
if we look at this in terms of an epidemiological factor, what we're talking about is we're talking about what's referred to as the R-naught value. And the R-naught value is the indication of rate of spread within the population, where if we have any value that is greater than one in the R-naught, that's the indication that we have spread taking place. And you can think about this in terms of like a, a percentage, where one would be 100%. And anything that is a decimal above that one is the indication of the percentage of the population that would become infected if you happen to interact with that person if you are infected. And so if I happen to have like a 1.5 on my R0, that's an indication of about 50% spread taking place. If I am less than one, that is typically the indication that the spread is dying out or we have no spread taking place within the population. And that's simply because there is a less than 100% chance of me passing my contagious agent, my infectious agent, onto somebody else. Now, the R0 is the, not the only thing that comes into play in terms of going beyond the individual here. And that's because when we start looking at, am I contagious or am I not? What we're really looking at along with the R0 value is the incubation time. And the incubation time is the indication for how long does it take for me to become infected and then show symptoms of that infection. If I have a very high incubation time, that's the indication that there's a, a long time in between becoming infected and showing symptoms that I can be transmitting that infectious agent to others. And so if we go back and start looking at some of the, the generalized public health ideas about it with the COVID-19 pandemic that uh, we went through from 2019 through and depending on how you, who you want to talk to, still going on here in 2023. If I'm infected, I want to kind of isolate myself for about two weeks. And that's simply because of the incubation time, where over those two weeks, I'm going to self-monitor my symptoms. And by self-monitoring my symptoms, I'm going to determine if I am infected and contagious. Where if I wasn't self-monitoring my, my condition, I can very easily transmit that virus to others that I'm coming in contact with without knowing that I am transmitting to others that I'm coming in contact with. And so when we start looking at how contagious uh, a disease happens to be, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at not just the R0 value, that is, what's the likelihood of spread taking place, but also how long is the incubation time going to be in between when I, when I become infected and when I know I'm infected. That is, how long does it take between infection and showing signs of infection. And this is where having vaccinations and having immunizations to the disease itself, to the virus itself, to the bacteria itself, or exposure to something that's very similar is going to allow me to reduce my contagiousness by allowing the immune system to, quote unquote, handle the infection during that incubation time so that I do not become contagious and I do not show symptoms of that contagious disease. That ability to mount a proper defense within that incubation time is also gonna relate to the activation sequences and the ability to minimize other stresses and other inflammatory issues that can impact my overall immunization and immune functions. Based off of the idea about going beyond the individual, we develop two distinct types of immune discussions, which is what we're going to focus on for the rest of our time here. And the two overall kind of ideas about immunity are herd immunity and shield immunity. 
And so when we start looking at herd immunity, what we're really looking at is we're looking at how can we stop spread of a disease within the population. And so it's it's all about novel exposure, that would be a new disease entering a population where we have no vaccinations, no immunizations, nobody is protected. And what's happening is that within that population, because there's no protection of the individuals, anybody that becomes infected automatically becomes contagious. And so what's up happening is we get rampant spread through the population. We have a very high R-naught value, regardless of what the incubation time happens to be, simply because we have not been able to establish a means of defense within the population. Now, as that disease kind of, quote-unquote, takes hold within the population, some individuals will survive the infection. Some individuals may become vaccinated against the infection. When this happens, what ends up happening is instead of having widespread infection, we end up minimizing the amount of infection that takes place. We start having protection with of four individuals in the population that slows the spread of the infection, particularly around close proximity to individuals who have protection against the infection. When we increase this population, what ends up happening is that we can actually almost stop the spread from taking place. And this is where we develop herd immunity, where the spread of the disease stops within the population. Now, here's the thing. is just within that population. Herd immunity is, is within the herd, which means just because I am immunized or just because I'm vaccinated against the disease doesn't mean that I cannot transmit it to other individuals. It simply minimizes the chance for me becoming contagious and becoming infected and becoming contagious. As long as I stay within my population that is vaccinated and immunized, the spread of the disease stops. The spread of the infection stops. But if I travel outside of my community, outside of my herd, I can now transmit that disease to another population that may not have the same level of protection that I have. This is how we start looking at some of the global explorations that took place with the Europeans coming to the Americas and the decimation of the indigenous populations through disease. That's how that took place. Because the Europeans had protection against diseases that the indigenous populations did not. And that led to the spread of that disease. In the same fashion, some diseases within the Americas that the indigenous population had protection against, Europeans did not have protection against, and diseases spread that way. And once we have the herd immunity established across multiple herds, across multiple communities, across multiple populations, we're slowly able to lead to eradication of diseases. There are a number of diseases that were very close to being eradicated, which we'll touch on in a few minutes here, that because of limited exposure naturally and no exposure to vaccines have led to small cluster epidemic rises of distinct diseases within populations. Now, what we have to remember here is that just because I'm developing herd immunity within my population, I'm not eliminating the pathogen. I'm simply limiting the transmissibility of that pathogen. That's the key here. We're limiting the transmissibility. We're not getting rid of the disease. Simply because we say that a disease is eradicated doesn't mean that the disease no longer exists. Now, what can we do if we don't have vaccinations but still want to limit spread? 
because what we're trying to do is we're trying to slow down the rate of transmission in order to allow for a large enough survivorship to take place so that we're able to minimize total transmissibility within the population. And this is where we get to the other idea that we're going to cover, which is the idea of shield immunity. Shield immunity, you can think about as hygiene, hygiene, hygiene. Somehow developing barriers to limit transmissions so that if I do happen to become exposed, it has a, the exposure has a limited chance of actually entering the body. And so what are some of the examples that we think about with shield immunity? Well, we have the super high tech stuff like the hazmat suits or the surgical garbs or the very simplistic stuff that we've been exposed to over the last few years, such as masks. But what else might we think about when we think about shield immunity? Doing things like staying home when we're not feeling well. That's a form of shield immunity. Coughing into elbows so as to limit the spread of the contagious agent, the infectious agent, when we happen to sneeze or cough. Washing hands. Good 20 to 30 seconds of hand washing with soap and warm water. In a scrubbing fashion, getting in between digits, in between fingers and thumbs, is a means by which we can practice shield immunity. Shield immunity got a bad rap during the COVID-19 pandemic because of labeling in which shield immunity was discussed as uh, a social or a physical isolation. It's not a social or physical isolation. It's an, it's an attempt to establish barriers to minimize transmissibility. And what it's doing is it's protecting me, but at the same time it's protecting you, even though we don't like to think about it that way or talk about it that way, particularly when we're looking at the American sensibilities as it relates to public health, which isn't really public, more personal health, and the need to make sure that I'm healthy. And when we start looking at the shield immunity, instead of looking at it in terms of an isolationist point of view, think about it in terms of a protective point of view. And so what's this shield immunity going to do? Well, let's look at it in terms of the same way we looked at it in terms of the herd immunity issue. So if I have no shield, no way of protecting myself by establishing barriers or following good hygiene practice, if I have an infectious agent coming into play and I'm not paying attention to establishing shields, we're going to have widespread infection taking place within the population. Some of those individuals will get infected and survive and become immunized against, but depending upon what that infectious agent is going to do, it's going to lead to some sort of issues within the population. Okay, so now we have some people who are going to going to provide shielding. When some people start to provide shielding, we start getting some protection, but spread is still going to take place. The shielding is going to essentially protect those people immediately around the shielded person, but it's not going to be foolproof because what's going to happen is that the people around the shielded person are still going to have to practice shielding. They're going to have to use shield immunity at the same rate the other person is using shield immunity. Now, here's the interesting thing. In modeling, if we're able to get above 80% of a population practicing shielding, the rate of transmission almost goes to zero, which means that our R0 value is going to be one point very low percentage. Will there still be transmission? Yes, but the rate of transmission is very low, particularly if we can surround unshielded individuals with multiple shielded individuals. Now, here's the thing with the shield immunity. The shield immunity simply gives us time. It gives us time in order to establish a vaccination practice. Until we had vaccines developed, the only way to limit pandemic spread was through shield practices, which is why everybody was kind of 
quote unquote, up in arms when the ideas about using face masks and using hand washing and using distancing were the general recommendations to the population early within the COVID-19 pandemic. But they're going to say, oh, it's the same thing they did with the with the influenza pandemic of 1917 through 1919, what everybody references as the Spanish flu, but isn't really a Spanish flu. Story for another day. Everybody's saying, oh, all they, all those people, all they did was wear masks and kept some distance. And all the recommendations are is wear a mask and keep some distance. But medical profession has expanded so much. Our knowledge has expanded so much. Why are we simply doing the same thing that they were doing 100 years ago? Because it works. Shielding works. If we get enough people to buy into the shielding, and it's going to work until we get enough people immunized through survivorship that we can go and become an immunized vaccinated herd, which is what happened with the influenza pandemic of 1917 to 1919. It actually went beyond that range. It's the same thing that happened with every other historical pandemic that took place. The most famous of the historical pandemics is the Black Plague of Europe. The bubonic plague spread that wasn't just in Europe, but was also seen in Asia, what is sometimes referred to as the Middle East. We see very similar issues with the pandemic spread of uh, smallpox within the Americas. In all of those issues, we did not have vaccines against those diseases. We had very rudimentary treatment options once someone became infected with those diseases. And so the only way to protect against those diseases was to shield was to isolate individuals who were sick, was to wear protective clothing, protective masks for airborne diseases, such as COVID-19, such as influenza. And when we get a large enough shield taking place with a high enough rate of immunization occurring, which means that the R0 drops below one very quickly, usually seen with things that have very short incubation times, which means that individuals are highly aware that they are infected quickly and can isolate themselves before they become what is sometimes referenced in epidemiology studies as patient zero within a spread within a community. With all this in mind, we have to look at this idea about protecting everybody and protecting myself through survivorship or through vaccinations two ways. Herd immunity comes about by surviving, by surviving an infection, by surviving an exposure. What vaccines do is it allows for the herd immunity to develop much faster than what would occur through natural immunization taking place. The idea about herd immunity, the idea about herd immunity coming about from survivorship is that we're looking at a surviving rate of about 67 to 70% of the population surviving an infection to allow for herd immunity to develop through non-vaccination methods which means that you have to have a death within the population of about a third. That rate of death to to exposure usually is seen with an exponentially decaying curve. That means that we have a very fast rate at the very beginning, and the rate slows as the disease progresses, which means that in order to get herd immunity through a non-vaccination method, we're looking at decades, years and decades. In order to establish a large enough percentage of the population to not allow for rapid transmission of the infectious agent, the pathogen, the disease within the population. When we reach that point where we don't get the rapid transmission, where we get a large enough of the herd, a large enough of the community, a large enough of the population to become 
immunized to the disease. We can have eradication of that disease within the population. Once again, simply within the population. And that's because we're not eradicating the pathogen from existence. What we're doing is eradicating the pathogen from transmission. And when we're able to eradicate the disease from transmission, that means that that population will not see the disease. Or if the disease is seen, it's seen as a rarity. And so when we're looking at this idea, what we're really looking at is we're looking at, okay, how well does the population handle infection? And we're looking at spread. And we're looking at pandemic spread versus epidemic spread versus isolated spread to eradicated spread. And so what we're shooting for when we're looking at herd immunity is this 75% mark of vaccinated individuals in a population. Because what we're able to do is we're able to isolate the spread. Eradication starts to come in when we start getting to the 90 to 95% of the population being vaccinated. Now, the problem comes in here is that because we don't see diseases or we don't see remnants of diseases within populations, the idea of needing a vaccine starts to drop. And the idea about needing a vaccine dropping slowly starts to widow away the percent of the population that is vaccinated. And this holds for all diseases and all vaccines. That's simply because vaccines have kind of a shelf life, which is why we have to get uh, sometimes uh, teeters done on exposures to see if we still are able to mount an immune response to a disease. Sometimes this is why we have to get boosters to distinct diseases that we might have received a vaccine for. This is also why we have immunization schedules when we are young or if we are taking care of young children in terms of establishing their immunization. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that we maintain a population that is high enough so as to limit spread of non-lethal infectious agents and eradicate diseases that are lethal. But when I don't see the vac- when I don't see the disease, the idea that I need the vaccine kind of goes away. And so one of the things that's happened over the last 15 to 20 years is we've started to see limited use of selective vaccines. And when we start to limit the use of vaccines to distinct diseases, we start to reduce the amount of the population that is immunized and vaccinated against that disease. And when I limit the population that is immunized and vaccinated against the disease, I increase the rate of spread of that disease. This is where we have recently, and by recently I mean within the last decade, started to see increases in things that we thought were eradicated, whooping cough, measles, mumps. And the problem is that, particularly for some of those diseases, is that if my vaccination for the diseases have have waned, have been reduced, exposure to those, those pathogens from an unvaccinated individual increases the likelihood of me becoming partially infected, if not fully infected, and contagious, and in the case of some of the diseases, can lead to eradication of my memory B cells and memory T cells, which reduces my ability to be immunocompetent. That is my ability to mount an antibody-mediated response to infection. We'll discuss this a little bit more in detail when we start looking at some of the, the lies about vaccines in a subsequent talk. But the idea about what vaccines are and what vaccines do and how vaccines are important, not just for me, because it's going to lead to me surviving, but it's also going to 
help the community survive and lead to eradication of diseases, which means that I'm going to further protect myself by limiting the likelihood of me being exposed subsequently to a disease comes into play. Well, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. If you happen to be on the YouTube channel or on the podcast, please make sure you click that like and subscribe button. Please make sure you're giving us that wonderful five-star review. Please make sure you're sharing out what we're publishing out there on all of the various platforms that we have publications on. We appreciate you all sharing out what we're putting out there. We appreciate you spending some time listening to the podcast or watching some of the YouTube presentations. Please leave uh, comments about some of the diseases that you have questions about that or some of the ideas surrounding vaccines or vaccinations. 